pay bonuses for the last few years were something of a lifeboat for correctional officers at the Thompson Federal Prison in Illinois. But after some stabilizing of the staff numbers, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is opting not to renew the pay-based retention incentive at that facility. Well, now the federal union representing Thompson Correctional Officers is urging BOP to keep the incentive going into 2024 and beyond that. Without it, they say, there could be an exodus of officers at the already massively struggling facility. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And just tell us a little bit about what's going on at Thompson. It is a very troubled facility with violence and horrible incidents happening between inmates and also involving correctional officers. Uh, Why is this change happening and what are they justifying it with? Absolutely, Tom. There are a lot of very complicated issues going on at Thompson currently. So what happened was back in 2021, correctional officers at that facility were approved for a 25% retention incentive from the Office of Personnel Management. This was to try to prevent further staff attrition at the facility. And generally, BOP does have a couple of these incentives for other facilities as well. But for specifically at Thompson, the uh, incentive now is going to be removed at the end of the calendar year. So it's currently in place, but it will expire on December 31st. I spoke with a BOP official and they didn't specify why it's terminating, but notably there were some signs at least that maybe the staffing numbers were increasing according to testimony from BOP Director Colette Peters in 2022. But in the meantime, the American Federation of Government Employees and a lot of the officers are saying that's not how you know the situation is on the ground. These staffing issues are actually pretty significant, and w- they're worried that without maintaining that incentive, it's just going to worsen the attrition. Yeah, strange approach to take away the thing that's causing the situation to improve. And so let's stop doing that. I'm not the way I would manage. And what does the union say will happen, that they'll go back to high attrition and so forth? Exactly. The upcoming loss of that incentive will pretty likely cause a surge of staff attrition. That is what the union is quite worried about right now. They've heard from many officers at Thompson saying that they would plan to leave if the incentive isn't renewed. Signs are already starting to point that way, according to John Zumker, president of AFGE Local 4070, which represents about 450 correctional officers total at Thompson. We had 147 staff at Thompson email us and saying, hey, if they remove this retention, I am 100% leave. And we're seeing that right now. We had two staff quit this week. In December, our projected staffing is going to be around 87%. And keep in mind, that's with the retention in place. That's not the retention gone. Once that retention goes, it's going to open up a giant abyss. The Bureau's numbers show that we're losing staff. Yeah, so what is the BOP's rationale here? Is there a legal requirement they cite or they just don't feel like paying it anymore? So it's not clear. The BOP official that I was able to get in touch with didn't specify exactly why this incentive is expiring. But generally, when you look at the legal requirements for how retention incentives operate in government, agencies can get approval from the Office of Personnel Management when there's particularly difficult situations for recruiting and retaining staff. Of course, this was the situation at Thompson. That incentive, the payment is made either in installments or in a lump sum. It kind of depends. But the incentives have to be reviewed by the agency at least once a year to decide if they're still needed. After they review it, then the agency officials have to, under law, terminate the retention incentive when conditions that warrant to that incentive in the first place no longer apply. So it seems 
likely that that's the case. They didn't specify exactly why they believe this no longer applies, but that's basically what's going to happen at the end of this year. And of course, you have the union in the meantime, with just a couple of months left for that incentive saying, please actually do renew this. And what about the factors that make retention so difficult? I mean, the bonus might keep people there because of those factors, but it sounds like the factors are still in place. Part of it is the location of the Thompson facility. When I spoke with the AFGE local president, he said that it is a very remote area. It's in rural northwest Illinois. That's just the setting of the scene is is very difficult for some of these staff members to be convinced to stay. As you mentioned at the, the top of our conversation, Thompson's special management unit also closed earlier this year, and they're converting to the facility to a lower security institution. So there are a lot of changes internally happening at this specific facility. BOP officials said that the reason that they're converting it is in part because there were so many issues going on, and also because they hope that this will reduce the need for overtime, hopefully reduce staff burnout. But Zemker, the AFGE official, said that the problems are actually made difficult by even other factors as well. We're the newest institution in the Federal Bureau of Prison, and we are in remote location, desirability work here because of lack of childcare, the lack of schools, the factories, you know, pay more, the state of Illinois prisons pay more. So you're not giving us a chance to succeed because most prisons, you know, been around for 20, 30, 40 years, they have a base, a foundation. We don't have that. Right. And these challenges, though, are not necessarily unique to Thompson. There's lots of rurally based prisons in the BOP system. And as my series earlier this year elucidated, the BOP got the worst place to work rating in the federal government. So what's going on generally at BOP since that since those ratings came out? Tom, you do see a lot of staffing issues, not just at Thompson, but all of their the facilities for the Bureau of Prisons nationwide. On average, according to AFGE, at least there's about they're at about 60 percent staffing capacity overall. So that means there's a lot of people where there's there's positions simply just not filled. That, of course, leads to things like overtime burnout. It also leads there was an inspector general report earlier this year that found that the lack of staff leads to the inability for the the agency to investigate cases of misconduct by employees. They also have issues where they don't understand how many stuff they actually need to make these requests to Congress or whoever else, their other stakeholders. So there's just a lot of very complicated issues that are contributing to this really significant staff attrition and, and staffing gaps at BOP. And in contrast to Thompson, who is going to see the end of this retention incentive at the end of the year. There have been a handful of other BOP facilities that are going to start getting retention incentives. So it seems like BOP is the agency as a whole is picking the areas where maybe the attrition is most telling and and trying to fix the problems there. But recently, I also spoke to Brandy Moore White, who is the national president of AFGE Council 33. And she talked more about why these incentives aren't necessarily the end of the road for BOP's improvements. I will be brutally honest. Um, I think they're Band-Aids. The Bureau is severely understaffed. We are having massive problems um, recruiting and retaining. And so while we absolutely support um, anything (laughs) that is positive, um, because it is very beneficial to our members in the field, we absolutely need more help. 
And that's Brandy Moore, national president of AFGE Council 33. And she absolutely says they need more help. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. 
We are now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. 
And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has 
been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.